Star Wars fans were amazed this past Wednesday when the book of Boba Fett finally hit Disney+. Plus. Hello and welcome to episode 54 of Nerd Explosion. I am your host, John Wintrobe, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Sean Clark. How are you doing today, Sean? Well, this is the first Nerd Explosion episode of 2022. Yes, it's very exciting, and we're actually going to talk about our favorite stuff from this past year, from 2021, because it was the first full year that we've been doing this podcast for, because we started it about two-thirds of the way through 2020. Yes, it is. Uh, it was, 2021 was a blast, honestly. Personally, I would say it was the greatest year of my life. Just so much growth, so much uh, great things happened. And there was a lot of great entertainment stuff that uh, 2021 gave us, and I'm excited to talk about our favorites. So let's get into it. One of the biggest issues with 2021 was the stacked release windows. There were so many movies that got pushed back because of what happened in 2020 with COVID to 2021. And it caused a bunch of the release dates to be so clumped together that I wasn't able to see everything I wanted to. Like I missed out on the French dispatch, Wes Anderson's newest movie because it came out so close to last night in Soho, which we covered on the podcast in October. Yeah, it was a very packed year for movies. There's so much that I still want to see. Uh, but just simply lack the time to. I'm gonna I'm gonna watch a couple uh, watch a couple more movies this week. But I couldn't believe just how many great movies there were, especially in the latter half of the year. It felt like in October and November I was at Harkins once or twice a week. I, there, I remember there was a, a weekend where on Friday you me and Kim Richardson saw Last Night in Soho, and literally 24 hours later we went to back to the same theater. And watched uh, the new My Hero Academia movie. So that 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 right there, that twenty four hour period, uh, perfectly displayed, in my opinion, just how chaotic this movie time was. Yeah, and absolutely. yeah, and I'm and this week I'm hopefully going to watch Tick Tick Boom and Matrix Resurrections. I'm also on Wednesday going to go see American Underdog, which is Zachary Levi's new film where he plays Kurt Warner, one of my favorite athletes of all time. So I'm going to see that on Wednesday. I'm very excited about that. A lot of, a lot of great stuff. Yeah, because the week of No Way Home's release, I saw three movies within the span of like four days. Because I saw House of Gucci that Tuesday of its release week. And then two days later um, was, of course, when I went to go see No Way Home because I saw it opening night. But before seeing No Way Home, I went to go see West Side Story in order to try to relieve the anxiety I felt going to go see No Way Home. And that was just a wild time. Like, I saw so much of such a short period of time. And it also brings up another point that I wanted to get to, which is that Fox's kind of... Fox's movies are getting kind of destroyed by Disney. Like, West Side Story came out the same time as Spider-Man No Way Home, yet has such limited showings because of how, how well No Way Home's doing in theaters. Um, so, despite West Side Story being so good, it's getting all of its showings basically thrown into the trash because theaters are capitalizing off of how well No Way Home is performing, considering that it was able to crack a billion um, for the first time during the pandemic. No movie had done that since 2019. Yeah, I saw... So on New Year's Day, I saw Spider-Man No Way Home for the second time. And keep in mind, New Year's Day was a little over two weeks after it was released. And I went... 
to the theater with two other people to see No Way Home for a second time. And the only way the three of us could sit together was if we got the seats on the on the second to last row on the bottom. That and it was Cine One over two weeks after the movie came out. I have never seen a theater that packed. Yeah, I remember that we saw Endgame a week after its initial release, and it didn't have that main pack. It was just like us and a few other people. It wasn't nearly as packed as theaters are for No Way Home right now, which is just insane. Yeah, it blew my mind. I remember checking early in the day to see if we could sit next together at a normal scene, and it was. We got to the theater, and the almost the entire theater was full. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, and I have really mixed feelings about that because, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Disney's been kind of trying to bury a lot of their Fox releases this year. I mean, you have things like Wes Anderson's most recent movie completely underperforming and getting taken out like almost a week after release. Same thing happened with The Last Duel. Um, we saw something similar with West Side Story and now with Nightmare Alley as well. And all these movies are just getting drowned out by other major Disney releases, mainly Marvel stuff like Eternals or Spider-Man No Way Home, but also things like Encanto or other films that are coming out around the same time. And the only reason why that isn't happening with movies like Dune or with The Matrix Resurrections especially is because of the same-day release on HBO Max. If we saw something similar to that with these other independent releases, it may not be like that, you know? Yeah, I love No Way Home. The only reason I saw it a second time is because uh, a friend of mine really wanted to see it a second time because, like, that movie meant a lot to him, and my girlfriend hadn't seen it yet, so it was her first time. That's, That's really the main reason that I went and saw it a second time. I mean, it was still absolutely great but yeah i also agree that i don't like how other movies got punished for it and i go go ahead sorry and because of how big it is like yeah it took away not just my time from seeing other movies but other theaters in general and i will admit that it is unfortunate now there's no way home deserves that absolutely it's it's endgame but even better but other movies deserve to be in the spotlight as well. It was it was just unfortunate timing. So on your top ten films list, what was your favorite? Yeah, my number one film of the year on my list on the Rich Report was actually an anime film. And technically it didn't release in 2021. It technically released in 2020 because Japan had a small window where they weren't really being affected too bad by COVID. They were able to open theaters again and showcase some of their stuff. And during that time, they played um, the Vine Evergarden movie, which did, I think it hit theaters here in the U.S., but only for a small period of time, again, because of COVID. Um, But I finally got the chance to watch it this year on Netflix, where which is who owns the license to Vine Evergarden. And it has to be one of the most beautifully animated films I've ever seen. Usually animation like that found in Violet Evergarden, um, that quality and the beauty of it is usually only seen in shonen action films, like Demon Slayer Mugen Train, which we got earlier this year. Um, Which is probably why I love Violet Evergarden so much, because the whole show is kind of like that. And it was a tough decision putting it number one, because like any... um, 
anime franchise that gets a film conclusion or film um, added to its story in order to adapt story events, it's it relies on previous material. Like, you have to have seen the first 13 episodes of the show and the previous movie before um, this one and in order to understand what's going on. And that can be a little much for some people, you know? I it's hard to expect audiences to have seen all the stuff prior to it. Um, but I chose to have it be number one because I... I cried more watching by Evergarden than I did any other movie I saw over the past year. It gave me, it connected with me emotionally, and that's mainly because of how much I loved the show and how good the film was as a conclusion to it. But there just wasn't anything that topped the way I felt about the movie and, and the beauty and craftsmanship put into it um, compared to any other movie I saw this year. Yeah. Now, when it comes to my favorite movie that I saw in theaters, that would actually be Edgar Wright's newest film, Last Night in Soho, which I got to see back in October with you and Cameron Richardson. Yeah, Last Night in Soho is absolutely fantastic in almost every single way. It's a, it's a flawless 10 out of 10 film. It shows that Edgar Wright is, is one of, if not the best actors, sorry, directors, I apologize, uh, in Hollywood, and once again, he knocked out of the park, and he really nailed the horror genre. And I would say that was definitely one of my favorite movie experiences of this year. It's interesting how many movies, or just entertainment in general, that we got in the past year that commentated on the use of nostalgia in our entertainment. I'm like, because. A lot of the movies that we get nowadays are usually capitalizing on the enjoyment of things from our past. I mean, we just talked about No Way Home, which, while it did use it, I think it did very well, did it very well, but it did use nostalgia of the prior Spider-Man films as a heavy part of getting seats, of getting people into seats in theaters, right? And Last Night in Soho was mainly about how damaging that nostalgia can be for us because the main character played by Thomas and McKenzie looks back at the 60s as this glorious time period. She may not have lived through it, but she views it through rose-colored glasses, thinking that it's so much better than what she is currently enjoying in the past. And ultimately, that desire to experience the past, that nostalgia she has for a time before her own, is what causes her so much pain throughout the whole story. It's kind of a virtue on the lessons or of leaning too far into that nostalgia, being too relegated to the past or to your own past, right? Yeah, it's a tough lesson. We always want to look at the past, but we don't always appreciate what we have in front of us. It's it's a very obviously convoluted way to say that, but it was done perfectly with all the, the colors imagery and the whole you know the whole twist and everything it was perfection um it, it very much felt like an Edgar Wright horror movie it was edited brilliantly and the script was insanely tight yes now as far as far as my favorite movie of 2021 this was this was a very tough decision to make because it was basically I guess there there are some that I want to see that haven't yet, but I don't think any of these films will top these three. 
So I had a very tough time going between Spider-Man No Way Home, uh, Last Night in Soho, and Dune. So all three of these films great. Obviously, we just talked about Last Night in Soho. Spider-Man No Way Home is perfection for those who have grown up with Spider-Man like I have and has satisfied not only all the other previous Spider-Man movies, but also the MCU storyline. I thought, and especially seeing it a second time, I arguably loved it even more. Just because, like, I, there were moments I couldn't wait for. Yes, and if you want to hear our full thoughts on Spider-Man No Way Home, you can listen to um, the podcast that we recorded last week because we talked about the full movie in spoilers in depth um, and the way that it used nostalgia. So if you want to listen to us talk about that even more, you can go back and listen to that episode of the podcast. Yeah. Um, however, as great as those two films are, I do... I would give my pick to Dune. I would say that Dune was my favorite 2021 film. Now, I understand that that can be a very controversial take. I understand that that's not a popular pick. I hate to break this to you, Sean, but that's actually not really an unpopular pick. A lot of people saw Dune. In fact... Out of the major, like, blockbuster films that we kind of got in the last year, Dune was probably the most artful and likely will end up on most people's favorite list um, when it comes to movies that came out this year. It's a really artsy film, despite its grandiose, like, sci-fi-ness. It's very easily understandable why people would love it. And I highly doubt that you're the only person that has it as their favorite film of the year. That is true. But here's why Dune is my favorite. Like, yes, Spider-Man fulfilled so many emotions. Like I said, it was Endgame, but better. But it's fun. Yeah. Yes. But the thing about Dune is I don't think I've ever in a theater ever. if Because, like, my favorite theater moments have always been, like, moments of fun or pure emotion. This was the biggest spectacle I have seen on the big screen. This is what I was hoping Interstellar was. Because when I went, because when I saw Interstellar when it came out, the first two thirds of the movie blew me away, but I hated the ending. I hated it. The problem with the ending of Interstellar, or at least the final like third act, right, is that it's the filmmakers trying to act smarter than they actually are, right? It's trying to do way too much. It's trying to have way too much science be put into the plot. When the character relationships and the familial bond between father and daughter should really be at the forefront, and that kind of gets muted by all of the science getting put into it. It's a lot of interesting ideas, but there's just too much being thrown at an audience that likely wasn't meant to be accepting of those ideas. I wouldn't say the film is, is bad, but the issue it has is that it, the audience that Interstellar was marketed to was not the audience that was going to like the movie. Yes, and I think it was trying too hard to have an emotional connection with the finale when that's not what I needed. Uh, that I, I get that that's what kind of what was setting up for it, but it wasn't needed. But Dune, from start to finish, had me invested completely. It had There was never really a moment in the film that I wasn't in awe. Like, like, I probably spent half of this movie with my jaw open just because of how beautiful everything looked. And I felt like I just watched the beginning of what could be one of the greatest movie franchises ever. And the fact that 
the cast was perfection. The 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 look of the film was one of the best I've ever seen. Paul could end up being one of the best science fiction protagonists we've seen. And the fact that it want it, it immediately want it, I immediately want more. The fact that I get all of this is something that I am extremely grateful about. This is the most mind-blowing and just awe-inspiring movie I've ever seen in the theater. And I it, it it was a moment that resonated with me. It really helped me realize how much I love going to see movies in the theater. It was really the first movie that I saw in theater since COVID that made me remember how much I love going to the theater. So for all those reasons, Dunewood is my favorite 2021 movie. Absolutely. I talk about it both in my top 10 films list and in my original review from October on the movie. But Dune is probably the best book-to-film adaptation we've gotten since Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings. Both in, in visual spectacle and in direction, but also in the way that the script is adapted, all of that is just phenomenal. And it's not even taking into effect a bunch of the other stuff that goes into it, like set design and all the acting and stuff. But this really shouldn't come as a surprise from a director like uh, Denis Villeneuve, who at this point is most well-known for his sci-fi drama films, right? You have things like Arrival and Bird Runner 2049, and now we also have um, the first half of Dune. And the only real reason why it didn't end up higher on my list, because it only ended up, I think, at number nine on my list in total, and that's only because it is a little reliant on seeing the second film. Um, I'm certain that it will have an effect like Fellowship of the Ring did after Two Towers and Return of the King came out where it's looked on, it's looked back on in the better light than it was when it first came out. But even then, it's still a fantastic film and absolutely worthy of praise. I have no issue with it being your favorite film of the year. Yeah, and it's probably going to happen again considering with Denise Villeneuve's um, track record. But my number two film on my list was Tick, Tick, Boom, which in a year chock full of musicals like In the Heights or West Side Story, directed by Steven Spielberg, which in of itself is an exceptional film I highly recommend. I mean, I talked a little bit about it earlier, but I, I cannot recommend seeing West Side Story. I know that it's not playing in theaters very, very much anymore, but it's, it's very much worth the ticket. But my favorite musical of the year was uh, Win Manuel Miranda's directorial debut adaptation of Jonathan Larson's Tick, Tick, Boom. Um, mainly because a lot of the acting and production that went into it is just phenomenal. Andrew Garfield is a real force to be reckoned with. His musical performance, on top of how good his acting is and the fact that he had to replicate all of John, Jonathan Larson's uh, mannerisms because... Uh, Larson performed the play himself back in the 90s when it first hit off-Broadway. And it's just phenomenal in the adaptation. Um, the actual reproduction of Larson's original musical, combined with all the real-world elements and showcasing the actual events of his life, and then their cutting between the two is just extraordinary. Um, it's one of the most interesting and creative decisions I've seen in any musical that's come out in a long while, probably since La La Land, honestly. It is definitely a film I'm, I'm excited to watch that for. With Andrew Garfield being the lead, that just makes me want to see it even more. 
So what about your what about uh, your favorite uh, shows of the of the year? Yeah, because film wasn't the only thing exceptional over the past year. And if you've been following us um, on Twitter, especially me, or you've been listening to the podcast over the last couple months, then you know that I absolutely loved this small little uh, CG video game adaptation that hit Netflix and may or may not have become the most popular series over taking Squid Game. And that was a small show called Arcane. Uh, Arcane is absolutely phenomenal, okay? It features some of the best animation and storytelling I've ever seen in anything, not just television, just in general. And it is wild that it came out of a studio like Riot Games. Okay, that blows my mind. And the show is basically perfection. There's not really anything that I, that I can like point at that I have flaws with. There's just so much effort and affection and love put into this thing. It's wild. It, again, it's perfect. Yes. Uh, before this podcast, I was asked to, I was asked to uh, identify my favorite show that we covered on the podcast and one show outside the podcast. But when I thought about shows for the that we covered on the podcast, it took me two seconds to figure out what my answer was. And yes, it is also arcane. I here's the thing: I saw you, Wintrobe, tweeting about this. And I saw a lot of people tweeting about it, and I'm like, okay, it's probably just a dumb League of Legends show. It's probably just a bunch of fanboys. It can't possibly be that good, right? Right? Yeah, that's what I thought, too. I mean, there were lots of people within the League of Legends uh, fandom or fan base that assumed the show was going to fail. Because while Riot's music videos with Fortiche were good before, we didn't think that they were going to be able to handle a long-form television series like this ever. Um, and multiple content creators, especially, I think most notably Tyra One said that he was rooting for the show to fail because it's coming out of Riot. There's no way this could be good, right? Yes, and I will never forget, uh, at the, especially at the, at the end of the third episode, it just truly sunk in what kind of show this was. And I will admit that this show is perfection. It is. Here's the thing. There are there are basically six shows that I basically have as the gold standard television: Erased, Breaking Bad, Fruits Basket, Star Wars: The Clone Wars, Full Metal, and Avatar. The, this is better than just about all of that. Yeah, and you have to remember that the final season of Castlevania aired this year as well and yet arcane is still so much better than that goes to show and that's not anything against castlevania castlevania is still fantastic it ended amazing as one of my favorite endings of all time but that just goes to show how good arcane is it is better now i don't put arcane as high on my favorites just because other shows had more of an impact but as far as quality wise like arc like and by the way favorite arcane is still in my top 10 but as far as quality, this legitimately is probably number two, because I still think Full Metal is the greatest TV show ever, and I truly don't think anything will ever top it. We really need more seasons of Arcane to tell if it'll actually end up being better than Full Metal Alchemist. This is true. But the fact that I had to consider is Arcane already possibly better than Full Metal is insane to me, because Arcane, 
I was emotionally shook every episode, starting with episode three. I was in all of the animation. I was in all of the voice acting. And I was in all of literally everything. I am blown away how good this show was. And the fact that I was so invested and got really mad over a few scenes, I couldn't believe it. I was in shock. And I am. A part of me still doesn't believe that Arcane exists because of how good it is. The fact that it was so good that I honestly forgot Castlevania Season 4 happened this year because it Arcane just overshadowed it and that is insane to me so yeah i would i would definitely say that arcane was my favorite that we that we covered this year what are what are your uh, other favorites that we covered all right when it comes to anime right we covered the second season of re-zero or at least the second half of the second season of re-zero we covered the final season of Fruits Basket, and we covered Vivi Free Eye Song, and I loved all three of them, right? But if I had to give the edge to one of the three, it would definitely be Fruits Basket's final season. Look, Fruits Basket is one of my favorite anime I've ever seen. It's one of the best slice of life romances I've ever seen. Um, the writing for all of the characters and the relationships between characters is just exceptional. It's so dang good. And that's on top of the fact that the ADR direction um, by Caitlin Glass and the, and the voice acting by Laura Bailey and the rest of the cast is just phenomenal. And I just can't imagine putting anything else above it, except, again, Arcane. Yeah, that, yeah. I, Fruits Basket, the final season was fantastic. Uh, the whole show is, is a perfect 10 out of 10. I love every second of the show. It is, it is pure art. It is beauty and art. That is the show. Um, what about something that we did not cover on the podcast? All right. When it comes to anime, right, we covered the second season of ReZero, or at least the second half of the second season of ReZero. We covered the final season of Fruits Basket, and we covered Vivi Free Eye Song, and I loved all three of them, right? But if I had to give the edge to one of the three, it would definitely be Fruits Basket's final season. Look, Fruits Basket is one of my favorite anime I've ever seen. It's one of the best slice of life romances I've ever seen. Um, the writing for all of the characters and the relationships between characters is just exceptional. It's so dang good. And that's on top of the fact that the ADR direction um, by Caitlin Glass and the, and the voice acting by Laura Bailey and the rest of the cast is just phenomenal. And I just can't imagine putting anything else above it, except, again, Arcane. All right. Two very emotionally loaded shows, and looking forward to that ranking of King's Review. Yeah. Now, as far as my favorite show uh, outside of what we cover on the podcast, this was a very easy choice, and that was Ted Lasso. Now, I am a sports guy. Obviously, uh, sports has always been a part of me ever since I can remember. And for a long time, uh, I was recommended Ted Lasso, which is a show about an American football coach who has a bunch of quippy one-liners, is hired uh, to take over a prim an English Premier League soccer club 
uh, because the new owner of the club wants to get revenge on her ex-husband for cheating on her. That is the first 10 minutes of the show. And when I tell you that this show is perfection, it, it is. It is, first of all, it is absolutely hilarious. It provides a lot of great sports moments, but it's so much more than that. It provides a lot of heart. It provides a lot of wisdom. There's a lot from this show that I have learned and applied it to my life, and it has made my life better. I have never really seen a show that does that. There is so much heart. Almost every single character, even the ones that start out as unlikable, become characters that you can at least somewhat relate to. Every single character gets depth. Almost every single character has something of substance. There are so many characters that are written so well. The relationships are done so phenomenally well. And they balance heart and comedy as much as any show I've ever seen. I it, The second season aired this year, and, and season three will air next year. And Jason Sudeikis, Brett Goldstein are exceptional in, in their roles. I love how it balances sports. Because obviously I love the sports part of it. And this and they actually use real Premier League teams. And I'm a huge soccer fan. I love that. But it it has heart. It has advice. It has wisdom. It has so many takes on so many different tough aspects of life. If anyone hasn't seen Ted Lasso, including you, Wintro, please watch this. Because I have to finish Squid Game first. Say that again? I'll get to it at some point. I got to finish Squid Game first. Fair enough. But it is absolutely phenomenal. I love pretty much everything about it. And even if you're not a sports fan, you will love it. Now that we've talked about our favorite movie TV show, and this is something that I personally wanted to talk about. Um, so for the site, Wintrobe obviously... Uh, and obviously, Cam Richardson, they both, you know, really specialize in movie TV. But obviously, I am the main video game contributor uh, for the site. I don't play that many games. I just time for it. It's a time this, is, this, is, this is true. But I personally want to talk about uh, uh, the favorite video games that we played in 2021. Um, I have a lot to say and I want a lot to go into. So what were your favorite games that you played this year, even among the few that you're able to? That's actually a pretty easy question to answer. I don't play many video games because they take a lot of, you know, time commitment. I don't really have that much time. I mean, like, I, I spend a lot of time watching TV and movies, okay? But when it comes to the, the games, like the favorite games I've played over the last year, i say there's, again, two serious contenders, just like with uh, the shows that we didn't cover on the podcast. Um, but the first I'll talk about is the one that kind of I don't have to really go as, as in-depth with, and that was Hades. Uh, which originally came out last year, one game of the year for uh, 2020, which is awesome and super well-deserved. But the reason I love Hades so much is because it takes your your basic dungeon crawler aesthetic and it combines it with a lot of playability because the game is has almost endless playability. I mean, even after you beat the final boss, there's pretty much like no limit to where you can go in the game. You can play it again and again and again as many times as you want. Um, 
there's still so much to do, like there's so much plot and, and character development left after it. But the gameplay is extremely smooth. The art style is really dynamic. The voice acting, despite being, like, again, it's an independent game um, from Supergiant. So, so the production quality put into it, despite not being a major studio, is just incredible. And it also is such a limited game graphically that it could probably play on everything. Like, Sean could probably play it on his own laptop. So it's just an incredible game. It's super fun to play. And, and the, the basic plot of the game is it follows the son of Hades and Persephone, Zagreus, as he attempts to escape the underworld in order to see his mother who's living in the mortal realm. And in the process, he has to fight all of the monsters that his own father has weighed in his path in order to prevent him from seeing his mother. It's a very simple story, but that's incredibly compelling, and... When you do finally beat Hades and you talk to Persephone, it's it's just fantastic. And the heartfelt moments between Zagreus and Persephone are some of the best in the whole in in the game, and some of the best in any game that I've played. And it's and almost every character has that kind of sympathy, sympathy or or gravitas to them, except maybe the Olympic gods, who you're getting boons from over the course of the game because the gods of the Olympic Pantheon think that Zagreus is trying to escape the underworld in order to join them on Mount Olympus, right? So they're trying to help him in the process. Um, so I'd say, like, outside of maybe, like, Zeus and Poseidon, maybe some of the other Olympic gods, everyone else is pretty sympathetic and, and likable for the most part. Um, now I'd say that the Olympic gods aren't likable, but they clearly have, like, um, ulterior motives that aren't backed by... Um, my heart. Like, you can understand where Hades co is coming from because he loves Persephone and he might think that Zagreus going to see her might sacrifice what she has in the mortal realm. So you can understand where he's coming from for that. But it's just an overall really good game and I highly recommend playing it. If you haven't touched Hades, you absolutely should. Especially considering how cheap it is on most stores. Um, especially on Steam. What consoles have Hades? To my knowledge, everything. I'm pretty sure Hades is on every console. I personally have it on PC, but it runs pretty good on almost everything. I know that because it's an independent game, I believe it's max price at $30, which is a pretty good deal considering the amount of bang you get for your buck with this game. Um, however, my personal recommendation, like with almost everything, um, is to get it on PC. As I mentioned earlier, it can run on pretty much anything. Um, when it comes to PC. So I would get it on PC off of Steam and just wait for maybe a sale to get it for even cheaper. But that's why I would recommend. Uh, the other thing is it definitely requires a controller. So if you have a USB controller, that's why I'd recommend. Because I tried playing it with a keyboard recently and mapping the keys to the keyboard and then trying to play it that way is just horrendous. <laughs> it's definitely built for a controller. So that, that's why I would recommend. It is $25 on the Nintendo Switch store. Absolutely. And you said there's a second game. Yeah, a little more on the, the heavy on the writing side or the philosophy side is Near Automata, which I've talked quite a few times on this podcast about. It, I mainly call it the game that changed the way that I view video games, right? Because Near Automata broke my heart several times over with its complex story and characters and gameplay 
it's just a beautiful game. It's probably one of my favorite, if not my most favorite video game I've ever played. Um, it's a fantastic JRPG, and it is as strange and wild as the mind of its creator, Yoko Taro. It's just amazing, and I can't recommend that one enough either. If you've never touched Nier Automata, it's just one of the best games ever made, and there's a reason why people were so upset when it wasn't even nominated for Game of the Year back in 2018 when it first came out. Um... You want to know something? I just looked on the PlayStation Store. It is 20 bucks right now. You should buy it right now. Like, that's what I paid for it. I paid $20 for it on Steam, and it was way... It was worth so much more than that. It was worth, like... If I got a full price on release, it would have been worth the $60. $20 is a steal for this game. I would buy that right now if I was you. Am I about to buy this game on this podcast? Okay, I'm just gonna just gonna leave that right there. As far as what I played this year, so there are there were a lot of contenders for this. I so literally in in two hours before 2021 ended, I finished Super Mario Odyssey. It was a fun game. It was. I'll have a more in depth review about it in the next week or two, but it was okay. I played Super Mario Galaxy, which I did write a review for it about a month a month or so ago. Super Mario Galaxy is one of the best games I've ever played. The level platforming was great. I loved the space adventure. The soundtrack was epic. Super Mario Odyssey... Okay, here's how I sum Super Mario Galaxy. The adventure was excellent, but the ending was lackluster. Now, take that from Super Mario Galaxy and switch it with Super Mario Odyssey. The ending is one of the best I've ever had in a video game. Period. The, like, it, it was one of the best endings of a video game I have ever seen. And the boss battles were awesome. And easily, the b- way better boss battles than Galaxy. However, I honestly did not like the overall gameplay mechanic. I did like throwing a hat and turning into other enemies and using their abilities. I thought that was genius. But here was the problem. Every world you went to, you had to collect a bunch of power moons to fix your ship. You could fight the boss battle of this level, and you still have to find the most random of power moons. And I'm sorry, I don't like that. Because that, to me, cheapens the impact of beating a boss. Because in my opinion, when you beat a boss, that should be it. Imagine you face Bowser, and it's an epic, tough boss battle. And then you have to face off. Then you have to take a power moon away from Goombas. That is this game, where you have to have a certain amount of power moons before you advance, but it doesn't prohibit you from facing the boss without having enough to collect it first. I don't like that. I don't like how there's not finality to boss battles. I don't like that. So I'll have a more in-depth review on that. Oh, I thought it was a good I thought it was good. I'll give it probably a seven and a half, eight out of ten. Just because there were some there were really strong aspects and there were some strong aspects I really didn't like. Now, as far as what was my favorite game. So 
I played the Phoenix Wright trilogy, which I will have Trials and Tribulations review probably done this week. Um, so I played that, and I also played uh, Super Mario Galaxy and Spider-Man Miles Morales. Th- those are those are the video games I played this year, uh, as far as uh, that are plot heavy. And my favorite of them, uh, I would definitely have to say, is is Phoenix Wright Trials and Tribulations, which I know, Wintrobe, you're very happy to hear that. Yeah, I love Trials and Tribulations. It's probably my favorite of the Ace Attorney games. I think it's the best or at least richest story-wise out of all the Ace Attorney games that I've played. So, yes, I'm very happy to hear that that's one of your favorite games, if not your favorite game that you played this year. Yes, this is the one Phoenix Wright game that, that cases build on each other. And it basically, aside from two cases, has an overall story. The writing is some of the best I've seen in a video game. Uh, the the music, especially in the final case, is perfection. Uh, the, how everything weaves together is crafted so brilliantly. Uh, all the characters have great development. Uh, Edgeworth is great as always. Francisca von Karma is great. Uh, Godot is awesome. Uh, Phoenix himself is awesome. Uh, the main villain, Dahlia, is is a great villain. There, I love everything about that final case. And while there's one case that falls flat for me for the most part, I don't care. Because the two cases and the final case that all go together, I don't have a single issue with them. They're all done so beautifully well. And... I when I tell you that I spent almost all I pulled an all nighter on the last case. I couldn't go to sleep because I needed to know what happened in the case, and that might be the only time ever in a video game history that I'm glad I did because it was worth it. It was one of the best endings to a video game trilogy or video game in general I've ever played, and with all those factors. I would definitely have to say that it was my favorite game that I played in 2021. It, it is number 18, excuse me, 19 of my favorite video games of all time. And I can't wait to see what I play in 2022, probably near Autonomous. And watch what watch me do this podcast a year from today, and I say near Autonomous is a favorite game of 2022. Which would make it the second time in three years that a Square Enix game would be my favorite game I played that year. Because the fa- my favorite game that I played in 2020 was Final Fantasy VII Remake. Which, I don't care if you have played Final Fantasy or not, everyone should play that. Because that, that is one of the best games I've ever played. Well, now that it's on PC, I'll probably get to it eventually. Well, you also played the original Final Fantasy yeah, VII. Yeah, I played the original Final Fantasy VII. I can't wait for the next game. Uh, hope If... If it's exclusively on PS5, then that might then that mean I'll finally have to probably get one. Uh, but I'll hold off until then. But I'm let's just say I will try to play that game the first second I can because Final Fantasy VII Remake was great, and I just know the next one's going to be arguably even better. Of course, I mean there was all kinds of stuff that we've watched in, in 2021, but we got a little nice nice present this past Wednesday if you're a Star Wars fan. And this was, of course, announced at the end of Season 2 of The Mandalorian. And while, yes, did we need the Boba Fett show? Probably not. 
but did it end up being surprisingly good? Yes, it did. Like, honestly, I was expecting this thing to be pandering and maybe a little, little cheesy in its execution and a little on the nose of what it was trying to do. But the, the visual storytelling and symbolism and, um, and mythological imagery used in this episode is wild to me. Um, and a lot of that comes from its use of flashbacks. I was not expecting the first real images that we saw in the first episode. They're so Camino and the death of Django Fett in Attack of the Clones. Loved it. Loved and it. It's a really interesting story point. Um, because I'm going to get a little bit into the myth here for a second. But the whole show takes place on Tatooine, which is a desert planet, right? And Boba Fett's journey in this show technically began when he got out of the Sarlacc, when he um, leapt from the belly of the beast and came out as a changed man. He escaped the depth of Tatooine like the depths of the water, right? And his whole purpose in this show is trying to bring a respectable rule to Tatooine, a rule that Jabba the Hutt and Bid Fortuna after him did not have. They, as Boba says, they rule through fear, and he wants to rule through respect. Similarly, almost every tragic event in Boba's life has happened on a desert planet. The death of his father on Geonosis, him being trapped in the Sarlacc on Tatooine, then climbing out, having his things stolen by the Jawas, and then captured by the Sand People, by the Tuscan Raiders. Every negative thing that's happened to him in his life has happened in the desert, without water. And in almost all of his most fond memories are on Kamina, a water planet where he grew up, the place that he thinks about when he dreams, the time in his life he wishes he could go back to, because that's when he still had his father, the person that he was most connected with, the person that is the reason why he has the code of honor that he does, the person that he respects more than anyone else that he's ever known. And him wanting to bring a respectful rule to Cassine is like him wanting to bring water back to this desert, lifeless, planet. The water that he knew when he grew up. The water that he hasn't had since he was a kid. Wow. I didn't even fully think about that. Uh, that is tremendous. And that kind of goes along with what I wanted to say. Yes, I love this first episode as well because there wasn't much dialogue. It was it relied heavily on visual storytelling, which is honestly one of the biggest things I love about Star Wars is the visual storytelling. That's one reason why I will probably always prefer Star Wars over ever any other movie franchise ever, even Marvel or Lord of the Rings, because the visual storytelling and just the whole uh, space atmosphere is next to none. And I loved how you saw, you know, you talked about uh, how he thought about Camino and his father's death. And I just love how he was trying to survive in 
you know, get by while he was being captured by the Tuscan Raiders. He wasn't speaking much. He was having to use uh, the power of observation, having to use his, his intellect. He was just trying to survive, and you could see how defeated he looked, but also at the same time how he was trying to persevere. And Tamara Morrison did an excellent job portraying this just through his facial expressions. And I thought he really made the character his own more than uh, we've ever seen, uh, not just from his other clone roles, but even in The Mandalorian Season 2. I loved his acting in this. I thought he really gave a lot of power to this character without even really saying much. I think one of the smartest decisions the show made, I know there have been articles and stuff like that, but, but this is what really differentiates it from The Mandalorian, because we get so much emotion, so much character, just from his facial expressions and moments. We see his fear or anguish or perseverance um, and all that feeling with him, with his mask off. We see his humanity, where, whereas in the original movies, he never really had that. And I like the fact that they're making that a part of his character, because it seems that his climbing out of the Sarlacc and his time with the Tuscan Raiders and him having seemingly nothing to his name has changed him and made him a, a, a better person, he made him more human. Yes, and and when he's uh, spared those two Gamorrean guards, even though, sorry, and the fact that Fennec wanted to kill them, like, shows his humanity and shows how much he wants to emphasize respect. And that makes me want to root for him, which is not something I thought I would say about Boba Fett ever, but it's true. It's one of the things that is... It feels obvious now, looking back on it, with the way that he was introduced to Mandalorian season two, with them immediately showcasing his code of arms, his relationship to his father, the respect that he has for Din, um, his willingness to uphold um, a pledge that he gave from the protective child. It all leads into his honor code. And this whole show seems to be about him trying to spread that code of honor to the rest of Tatooine under his rule, under his watchful eye, and the struggle with trying to make that a reality. But it's not going to be easy. He is already being met with a lot of resistance, like when he got ambushed. Yeah. Um, it appears that the mayor of most Espa, which most people will know as the city that Anakin was from in Phantom Menace and where the father is took place, um, it's also, to my knowledge, the capital of Tatooine, if I remember correctly. Um, it appears that the mayor of Mos Espa, like many people on Tatooine, as we saw in episode 9, um, or the premiere episode of The Mandalorian's second season, that a bunch of factions on Tatooine are taking advantage of Jabba's death and trying to take over their own sections of Tatooine and rule without oversight from, from larger powers. And the mayor of Mos Espa seems to be in a similar position. It's very likely that he's enjoying the amount of power he has now, now that the Hutt clans no longer rule Tatooine. And he likely doesn't want to give up that power to someone like Boba, 
who has a questionable reputation, you know, because again, the people attached to me know him the way that he was when he worked on the new job, but they don't know who he is now. They don't know this respectable, honor-bound warrior that he is now, the seasoned veteran that demands respect. They know him as this tool underneath Java, this leaf that he had. Um, they know him as a bounty hunter that always did his job and that was ruthless underneath his, his work. They don't think that someone like that can handle ruling, right? Mm-hmm. It's only natural that they would push back. Not only do they want the power for themselves, they don't see Boba using that power to their advantage. They don't see him being an actual good faith ruler for them. Because he wants to rule for respect and not fear. If he was ruling through fear, it could be a situation like Java where they just don't want to push back because they're afraid of what he would do. But because he wants to rule through respect, they're questioning his motivation and whether he whether they should actually respect his rule or not because of that. They don't think he's up to the task and he has to prove that to them one way or another. Absolutely. It's it's obviously it's obviously an image change. And obviously the whole show's about him spreading that code of honor and it's gonna take a lot of it's gonna take a lot of adversity to do that. And another strong part of this episode was we got even more in-depth look at the Tuscan Raiders, like we did in this in the uh, episode in Chapter Nine of the Mandalorian. Yeah, and I I love how these mindless things that we saw in the movies are really getting fleshed out more. We, we're seeing more of their way of life and how they interact on a day-to-day basis. It's it, it is fleshing out the universe, but done in a respectful way, not just a fan service. Yeah, I mean, like, again, it could have easily been mindless fan service. And I get people's complaints about, like, it kind of, it's hitting the check marks. Like, we see him pull out of the sunlight. We see his armor get stolen by the dollar. Um, we see what happened to him to make him the person he is in The Mandalorian that we see in episode six. But I don't have an issue with that because of the visual language used for this. Um, like we already talked about um, the use of dry desert and water in this first episode um, to symbolize Boba's journey and likely through this whole show. But another nice little bit of imagery is that when he falls out of the Sarlacc, he's coked in, in gross fluids and dirt. And then he's immediately stripped of his armor into this white cloth that looks like a baby's onesie, as if he's being literally reborn when he falls out of the sarlacc. Yeah, that that was a very gross scene to watch. Yeah, the the visual language in the first episode is exceptional. And again, like you mentioned, the visual storytelling, um, you see a lot of this with the Tuscan ladies because unlike Ben, Boba doesn't know their language and can't really fluently communicate with them very well. Um, and he, like most of the other people that have grown up on Tatooine, has a certain view of the Tuscan Raiders, where he sees them as these violent creatures that aren't humane, that they're not humanoid, they're not like him. They don't speak like him, they don't move like him. So 
we have this natural prejudice against them, right? But again, it's interesting is we don't get to see how Jen won the respect of Tuscan in The Mandalorian. And it's really interesting getting that too. Um, like we had, we saw them humanize through Jen's interactions with them in the first two seasons. But now, like with episode, like with chapter nine, um, like with the Marshall, we're seeing a character discover humanity and what it means to live through their time with the Tuscans. Boba is learning respect and honor through a culture that isn't his father's, that isn't Mandalorian in nature. And I absolutely think that that had a huge impact on him. I think the show is using those moments to tell us why he's acting the way he is in the present, why he wants to rule for, for respect, why he he still acts ruthless, like he's still murdering people, like he still blows the guy up, no questions asked. Um, but he also still wants respect from people. Like we get that really cool moment of him going into the club and talking with the owner and having an actual civil discussion with them, where they're basically telling him, as long as you let us do our thing like we did in the new Java, everything will be fine and we'll respect your rules. As long as you also give us protection from outside forces. And I love the duality between that and the way that the mayor and, and his people treat Boba and Fennec and what they're attempting to do. Yes, there's, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of takes and analysis on power dynamics and, you know, and there's many different, there's many different dynamics that we're going to get as a result. And that is something I'm excited to see going forward. Absolutely. And again, I think the best, as you mentioned, the Gamorrean guards earlier, the best example of that honor actually paying off for him and the respect of his rule compared to the fear that Java or Ben had um, is the respect that the Morian guards have for him for sparing, his, for sparing their lives. They are indebted to Boba and you see that with every and everything and every way that they act. Like them protecting him when he gets injured, carrying him back to the back of the tank. Um, they, they have no ill intentions. They seek not to deceive or or attack him or in any or betray him in any way. They feel indebted to him for, for sparing their lives. And that type of respect is what Boba is seeking for Tatooine, for his rule. Um, he wants people to honor him, to to feel he wants to be respected. And in that way he feels like a Mandalorian, as much as any other character we've seen in Star Wars. Absolutely, uh, it was a very simple episode. There wasn't there wasn't much dialogue, but the visual storytelling al- allows us to learn a lot just through this first episode. And I got a feeling that these next, at least these next few episodes, are just going to be that much better. And if they Very continue that it, John Favreau and Robert Rodriguez have a real passion for this character. And that shines through with the way the, the story is being told. Absolutely. As long as they continue to run the visual storytelling and, and keep keep up with what they established in the first episode, I think we're in for a real treat uh, over the next couple months. 
Uh, we'll have to wait and see what the, the next few directors do with this character, because I know that the Book of Boba Fett's going to be seven episodes long, if I remember correctly. Um, I, I think it's nine. For almost every single episode. So, I know that both John Favreau and Dave Filoni directed episodes of this season. I know that Bryce Dallas Howard came back um, as well, with the episode two. Uh, and there's a few, there's a few new directors here coming episodes for this season as well. So we'll get a variety of different um, directions for Boba. We'll just have to see if they all match what Robert Rodriguez has laid down with this first episode. He's set the expectations pretty high, so we'll have to see if everyone matches that. Absolutely, I really, I really hope they do because. I know this is a very different show, but the Bad Batch peaked with its first episode. I don't think this will. No, absolutely. Um, I have a feeling that that won't be the same case. A lot of that has to do with a difference in audience. Um, the Bad Batch, like Clone Wars and Rebels before it, had the issue of trying to make a show that could be for all audiences, that could quickly get new fans of Star Wars invested in it. This is true. And honestly, between the three animated shows that I've seen from Star Wars, it probably still has the best first season. Oh, easily. I will agree with that. So, while it doesn't necessarily reach the highest that, of the Mandalorian, and I imagine that it would be strange if Boba Fett didn't end up doing better than just with how good this first episode was. And John Favreau's writing and story decisions, for the most part, have been excellent for me. There's only been a couple of things I've kind of agreed with with directions that he went with in The Mandalorian. But for the most part, I've liked almost everything that he's done in Star Wars so far. So I have full faith in, in the story that he's telling for me, especially after this first episode. I agree. Uh, we'll have to see where the story goes with me. This is just the first chapter in a larger story. We'll have to see where it goes. Absolutely. I I am optimistic and I'm excited for episode two, which from from when we record will take will will come out in a couple days. And I also will say it's really interesting and I honestly like the fact that Book of Boba Fett has a different structure than the Mandalorian. This is very much like a serialized show. Whereas Mandalorian was more episodic, having like singular stories told in each episode, while this feels like it's one long continuous story. Like it feels like um, the flashbacks with the custom Raiders and the stuff in the present are all building up in the continuous story. It's a very different feel, while still being able to capture some of the tones of the Mandalorian. The structure is very different. I think that it works to its benefit here. It does. I usually prefer very continuous storytelling, and while I think the episodic uh, story works in The Mandalorian, uh, considering that it's literally called The Book of Boba Fett, which obviously implies something continuous, it's holding that up very well. And I feel like we're going to get a lot of powerful growth and a great story of this character. And... If it does that well, then this show accomplish its mission. Plain and simple. But Book of Fett's not the only show we're currently covering right now. We've been following the last couple episodes of the podcast. We're currently covering the newest season of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. 
Stone Ocean, um, the much-anticipated first series of JoJo with a female protagonist playing Jojo, and we watched episode 9 this week, which was a, we just finished talking about episodic storytelling, and while JoJo's usually lends itself to more serialized storytelling, this was a more fun, kind of lighthearted episode compared to some of the other stuff that we've done in Summation. And that is episode nine, Marilyn Manson, the Jet Collector. Okay, I, I you can probably guess how I felt about this episode. Did you, did you find it fun? Oh, it was. I had an absolute blast watching this. Literally, literally, the whole episode evolves around playing catch. Now, what I'll say before before you go into your analysis, what I, I first like. The whole point of the episode is that it's basically, oh, how much longer can you keep playing catch? And this this really struck a chord with me because, you know, growing up, me and my dad always used to play catch in the backyard with the baseball gloves. It's it's always one of those fun sports leisure activities you can do. You, you get a glove, another person gets a glove, and you just throw the ball. Which it's one of the most, in my opinion, one of the most simplistic and but fun things you can possibly do as a leisure activity and something that meant a lot to me growing up. So the <laughs> fact that we had so, so the fact that we had a stand battle that evolved around this concept, I thought it was fantastic and I had a big I had a dumb grin on my face as I was watching this episode. With any simple game in JoJo, it's always sent up into the the most exponential degree where it is life or death whether they actually win this game. This episode reminded me heavily of the Darby fight from Stardust 230. With the characters having basically their livelihoods or souls on the line over a bet that they made. That is true. I forgot about that. That's an excellent comparison. Yeah. And on top of that, this is also the first time that we've really gotten to see the dynamics between Jolene, Hermes, and Foo Fighters. And they're just so much fun together on screen. They are so entertaining. And I know that that's something that JoJo's has always had. They've always been able to, to have the main cast be really entertaining. But the dynamic between these three and the friendship they have in this episode is fantastic. Oh, yes. They're all three very different people. I love seeing FF and Irma's, uh interact just because they're basically polar opposites. Yeah, Foo Fighters is like, she's a maniac. She's like, and, and she reminds me of Misa from Golden Wind, where she's like this wild card character that will do the most insane crap. <laughs> and honestly, I love her for that. The moment when um, the other one of the other um, prisoners tries drinking from her cup, and she immediately like forces the fluid out and like gets all of her saliva out into the cup, and is like, "Oh, there's more now. Cool." <laughs> it's just one of, if not the funniest moment in Sonosin so far. That moment was extremely weird. I'm just like, oh, wait, this is JoJo's. This is expected. But I was like, what in the hell is this? It was great, though. Yeah, no, I, I love Foo Fighters. She's, she's wonderful. Um, but one of the big things that this episode also did was it, once again, like the fight against Manhattan Transfer, this did a good job of showing um, Jolene's intelligence. 
and how smart she is um, as a protagonist. That's something that we kind of have with almost every protagonist in JJ. Um, is kind of the showcase of intellect and intelligence and how well they're able to think them their way out of these situations. I, one of the things that JoJo's always shines with is simple ideas like throwing, like playing cash and betting your livelihood against it. Like when Hermes cheats, she loses, I think it's, I think she loses her liver, right? Like her liver gets taken out of her first, like first once she runs out of money, including the money that she was keeping in her cleavage. Which is already really wild. Yes, it was. Like this is, it, it takes such a simple concept and makes it and turns it into such a dark place. Like everything in JoJo, and the way that Jolene has to think her way around these situations, you have to think around um, Food Fighter's lack of intelligence and worldly surroundings, and Hermes's temper. And have to try to keep the game going by trying to convince them or help them in these situations. On top of the fact that she has to deal with how much of a piece of crap Mirasan is as a character. She is ruthless and horrible and probably the most morally degrading antagonist that we've had in Stone Ocean so far. Yeah, she is all kinds of awful. Yeah. Um, although to be fair, it's unknown whether or not that is her own well well-being, like that's her actual personality, or whether that's what Pucci put inside of her when he uh, compelled her and gave her her stand at the beginning of this episode. Yes. Speaking of Pucci, we actually got to see a little bit of him in this episode. Yeah. What did you think of her first real time with Pucci? Um, I was pissed off in a good way because we really got to see just how much power he has in this prison system and how Amir Sean went to him at the beginning of the episode trying to get parole. And the fact that he has a position of power like that and the fact that he basically wasn't phased and used her for his own agenda, that just shows how ruthless he is. And the fact that he has those, all this power makes him just extremely intimidating and he had a real cool calm collected menacing feel to it which is a a kind of villain that i absolutely love and that was terrifying and i loved it yeah it's more than just him having a terrifying like white snake in of itself is is terrifying because of what it can do right but what's really terrifying about pichi is like you mentioned the power he has over the inmate being um, the prison priest, he has weight when it comes to whether or not they can get parole. Whether the warden and the other and the prison system will see them as having improved during their time in prison and become a better person. He has weight over that decision making. And that gives him all kinds of power over the inmates. It's not just him having the relationship like he had with John Dollier, where they both had they both worked for Dio and had a and had a desire for revenge out of that, but he also has this control over the other inmates because of where he is, because of who he is. 
Yeah, and that just shows that there's always a dark cloud hanging over our heads at all times, and you're never safe because of how much control he has. Yeah. Do you think that that's going to come into play later when uh, Jolene and our main cast finally confront him? Or meet him, come face to face with him for the first time? I think it will because they, any advancements that they're going to make is probably going to be halted by other people in power because of the position he has. Yeah. Well, on top of the fact that they don't know that he's like Nick Jesus. So then he's the prison priest. And again, as mentioned, he has weight over the inmates because he can give them parole. Because he, they see him as this force of power, this respectable person because he has a connection to God, because he's presumably Christian. But he also has the ability to help them get parole. And I imagine that if Jolene ever comes face to face with him, that that, that so likely play by his rules, not knowing that he is the one behind her father's current situation. That's going to be an irritating time. Yeah. I mean, just remember how stressful it was in Diamonds Unbreakable when the main cast didn't know who Kira was, despite all these times happening, and despite them seeing him and even being in the same place as him constantly without knowing who he was or that he was the one behind Segeti's murder. You remember that feeling? I have a feeling oh. that we're probably going to feel that again. Oh yeah, I remember that vividly. And Pucci is a fantastic re- is a fantastic villain for that exact reason. He's terrifying, and he has, I think, all of the best parts of Kira and Dio. He has power over the inmates in the prison. He has this sense of respect and loyalty from them because of the power he has, while also having this deception because no one knows his true intention, who he really is behind the facade he holds as the prison priest, as this man of God. Yeah, that's very terrifying going forward. But... What did you think about the way that this fight wraps up? Because, again, like you mentioned about Jolene's intelligence earlier, I think that it was particularly clever that she uses the rules of the bet against um, Mirashan and Meryl and Nancy's powers, where she basically plays the game in such a way that she forces Mirashan to cheat and have her own stand work against her. I thought it was very clever, and I and I kind of saw coming where she caught the bomb uh, using her stitch. Because one thing I know about baseball yeah, using, it, using the stitches on the ball, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, wait a minute, she has a thread stand. I have a feeling that's going to be important later. And like she did in her fight against Foo Fighters, her using that worked to her advantage. And not only is she very clever in using. The bet against her but also using her thread in a very subtle way it's not just a flashy stamp but it's very subtle and i loved how it was used yeah, absolutely and i love the final beat down with her using um so thread the constant the beat the crap out of mirrors on with the baseball by playing catch with her face 
So not only does she keep up the bet, but she gets the the defeat mirror shot at the same time. That that was one of the most satisfying JoJo beatdowns ever, and there's been a lot of great ones. Yeah, I think that her beatdown against Mirasan is the equivalent of um, Jotaro's beatdown of Seely Dan in Stardust Crusaders, or uh, Takawada's beatdown in Golden One, or Yuya Fundami's in Diamond is Unbreakable. This is her taking out her anger against an unfair opponent. Yes, uh, yes. I, 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 the comparison I was thinking was actually Jorna's beatdown of Chocolata. That was great. But no, I think that this was a fantastic one-off episode. Again, it gave, it gave us a lot of moments of her main cast and seeing the type of dynamic they have. It gave us time with Pucci and showing off what type of villain he would be going forward. And the idea behind this fight is simple, but makes complete sense, again, especially considering the type of fan that Stone 3 is. Um, the idea of the fan fight lends itself perfectly to Jolene's skill set. And I think that it's a genius idea. And it was executed really well. And I agree. It's probably the most fun fight that we've had these donations so far. Maybe not the best written or the most exciting or thrilling, but it's definitely the most entertaining i would agree with that i especially with the whole uh you know sports element i would definitely agree with that so of course the next arc that we'll be covering is the final arc of the first section of donation that we've gotten so far um which will be the last three episode arc of the show, which we'll of course be covering next week on the podcast. Um, how do you think that this first section of Stone Ocean going to be now that we have an idea of the type of person to see it? And also knowing that we still have a couple members of our main cast to meet. Yeah, our, our cast is probably going to grow. There's probably We're probably going to learn something. I don't know what it is. And we'll probably also learn a little more about uh, Poochie in the process. But not quite get to like, oh, they know who he is. That that's still a ways away. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I'm thinking loosely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and of course, that will do it for this week's episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed listening to our discussion, please feel please subscribe to us on the Risk Report and follow us on Spotify. Um, to make sure that you get notified of when our new episodes go up. Usually they come up on the weekends, I know because. We're recording this on Sunday night. This will, of course, go up on a Monday. Um, it's just how it is. You know, with all the holidays and everything, and with how busy we've been over the past week, it's been difficult for us to record in time for our normal weekend releases. Hopefully, we'll be better at that, and the next episode will come out on Saturday, but we'll have to wait and see uh, if that will be the case. Um, of course, Tom, what do you have coming up on the pod, on the site, on the report? So, uh, on the side, I wrote reviews of Encanto and Hawkeye, so check those out. Um, I will I will have a couple of college football articles uh, talking about uh, should players be opting out of bowl games or not. There's been a lot of controversy about that, so I'll write about that. I might write an article about the Philadelphia Eagles resurgence and along with my rankings. And then I'm hoping to uh, start knocking out uh, 
video game reviews of Phoenix Wright Trials Tribulations, uh, Spider-Man Miles Morales, but also recently uh, Super, Super Mario Odyssey has been added to my list. So, so that's what I got. Um, of course, for me, I'm currently doing um, my wrap-up of last year. As mentioned earlier when we covered our, our favorites of the year, um, I am putting that, these out kind of late just because I had the booster shot from COVID, so I just was way too tuckered out on the 31st to write anything. Um, but over the last couple of days, um, I put out my top 10 films article as well as my top five um, TV article for 2021. And over the next um, two days, I plan on doing my top 10 anime openings with Sean is of course helping me out on because there's way too many openings to listen to. And it's a pretty stacked heavy list for me this year. There were a lot of really good anime openings. Um, I also am planning on doing my top 10 anime of the year list. Um, even though a bunch of the shows I'm currently watching haven't fully wrapped up, I still feel um, confident enough that my list is accurate to what it would be once they should end up wrapping up. And if there is any changes, and anything like my article becomes outdated or whatever, I'll update, I'll post something about it on Twitter, um, or I'll up, or I'll put a comment out on the article on the site with an update. Um, on top of that, I'm also planning on doing a full review of the Matrix Resurrections at some point once I finish all my rankings because I freaking loved it. I don't know, I know that a lot of the Discord is kind of maintaining it as kind of up its own butt, like it's kind of pretentious. And it's a little too forward with its messaging. But honestly, I thought it was fantastic and easily the best of the Matrix sequels. One of the biggest issues that Reloaded and Revolution had was that I was not overly invested in the action, in the secondary characters, in the characters that weren't Neo and Trinity. And Revolution makes the incredibly smart decision to have their relationship and their romance at the center of this film. It is not wrong to say that their relationship and their bond in revolutions and the way it is impactful to the overarching plot and how important it is to the Matrix is what I wish Ray and Ben's relationship was in The Rise of Skywalker. Oh. It is wild to see another franchise film use the idea of like these two characters bound together magically um, through this otherworldly force. And it's crazy that it's done better in the Matrix than it is in Star Wars. Not sure how I feel about that. Yeah. So if you are a romantic person and you enjoy uh, drama and heavy philosophical storytelling, you'll probably love The Matrix Resurrection. It's fantastic. Highly recommend. Um, so I'll be playing out with you for that. I'm also planning on seeing um, Licorice Pizza and Nightmare Alley at some point soon as well. Um, so hopefully I'll be able to put out reviews for those. Um, I'm waiting a couple more days because COVID is still really hectic here in Lakewood because of Omnicron and all of that. So me and my dad are staying safe for the time being um, until it's been enough time after my flight to Colorado that we can feel safe going to the beer and being in public. Um, 
but I'm excited the, the second notice comes out and hopefully I'll be able to put stuff out for those as well. Um, also, um, a little comedy anime called Iramichi One-san, um, a show about childhood, child television, like creators, like stars, feeling as if their lives are unfulfilled and like their existence is horrible and that their lives are ultimately meaningless. Um, is wrapping up sometime next week. And it is honestly one of the funniest anime I've ever seen. I cannot wait to talk about it. Um, it stars, the English sub stars Adam Gibbs, who we of course will most recognize as the voice of Hachiman from Oregon. And he is just the best at deadpan straight face comedy. This role was literally made for him. So I'm excited to, to finally talk about it next week. I don't know if it'll end up on my top 10 anime of the year. This is that list is like super stacked and there's a lot of contenders for the last few spots on that list. But it was, it's one of the funniest anime I've ever seen. I highly recommend it if you're just looking for a good laugh. And, and enjoy some darker comedy. Sounds good. Look, looking forward to all that content. I hope to watch The Matrix uh, Resurre Resurrections this week. It's fantastic. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about it on the podcast next week. But no, and as I mentioned earlier, that'll of course do it for this exception of the podcast. Thank you all for listening. Have a great rest of your day.